Welcome to the Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's about the Bills and the beer. Now, here's your host, John Murphy. Welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. This is our weekly podcast. Hi, I'm John Murphy, play-by-play voice of the Buffalo Bills. This is where we talk about the Bills and the beer. We talk Bills football. This week, we're going to talk a little bit about Super Bowl 55, Kansas City and Tampa Bay. We talk beer, specifically Sullivan's Brewing Company, the sponsors of our show, the makers of Sullivan's Maltings Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Irish Gold Ale, and Sullivan's Black Marble Stout. We're going to talk about beer on this podcast, beer in Rochester, Rochester, New York. Will Cleveland writes a regular beer column for the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle. He says Rochester is one of the best emerging beer scenes in the country. We'll talk with Will Cleveland about that on the podcast today. Going to talk football, Bills football here, with my good buddy Vic Carucci of the Buffalo News. He covers the Bills. He has for a while. Normally, he covers the Super Bowl. He's gone to the last 35 or more Super Bowls, but not this year because of COVID. We'll talk with Vic about that. We'll talk with Vic about the Bills and the remarkable 2020 season. Bills already at work assessing and measuring what they did and how to move forward. You know, it strikes me, for a team that won 13 regular season games, 15 wins overall, a lot of wins, they've got an awful lot to do this offseason. They don't need a total overhaul, obviously. They have the big pieces in place, but they do have some moves to make. Got to do something about the pass rush. They need more pass rush. Maybe they need another cornerback opposite Tredavious White. They may need linebacker help, depending on what Matt Milano does. Are they going to have to replace Matt Milano? Will he leave as a free agent? They could use some help on the offensive line. They could use some help at running back. Vic talks about how they need help at tight end. Most importantly, I think, they've got to ensure that quarterback Josh Allen, MVP candidate, great season, gets better. They've got to make sure that he gets better as he has in the first three years of his career. Josh doesn't need to work on football so much, mechanics, I mean. He needs to work on thinking through the game, processing what he sees. What kind of coverage is it? What kind of pass protection do we have? What do we need pass protection wide? He's got to make good decisions quickly. It's what he seemed to be lacking in the AFC title game loss to Kansas City, I think. Recognition, decision-making, in-game experience is probably the key. These are things that really get better the more you play, but... Josh gets great guidance, great coaching from Brian Dable, his offensive coordinator, Ken Dorsey, and others. He needs more, though. He needs to take the next step in his development into an elite NFL quarterback. He's taken big steps already. We know he's not afraid of the work based on his first three years, and he's going to get on it soon. We'll talk with Vic Carucci about it when we continue with the Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. Our guest is a good friend of mine, longtime sports reporter, columnist at the Buffalo News. He, uh, you can see him on WGRZ TV on Sports Talk Live. You can hear him on Sirius XM NFL Radio. He's the co-host of the press coverage show. He's an author of ten books, four of them New York Times bestsellers, with people like Phil Sims and John Gruden and Jim Kelly, Fred Smurlis and Conrad Dobler. Vic Carucci is his name, and he's with us right now. Vic, uh, thanks for coming on. Your last appearance on our podcast. October 20th, which fell just a, a day or two after the Bills uh, lost. I think it was the day after the Bills' Monday night loss at Kansas City. They dropped two in a row back then, but n- neither one of us panicked. I do remember that distinctly. Right, right. And and we with good reason because it was a good football team that played two of their worst games of the season and obviously found their groove. And, and as I think we discussed then, the, that 4-0 start was not a mirage. Uh, and I also don't think the the hot streak that carried them right to the AFC championship game. I, I won't call that any sort of mirage either, but I, I will stress, and, and I know we'll get into this, that every season is its own entity, but take this season as an extremely encouraging sign of where this team is going. The Bills found themselves one win away from Super Bowl 55, which of course is coming up on, on Sunday. Um, they, they merited that, right? I mean, they deserve to be there. They were, for the second half of the season, they were pretty much as good as anybody in the league. Would you agree? I, I would agree totally. I mean, the numbers, and, and we could you could begin and end the argument with the history that was made by the numbers, by the point total that they produced, by Josh Allen's uh, individual records in passing and in yards and touchdown passes and total 
uh, touchdowns uh, running and passing. But it, it goes, I think it goes wider than that. I, I saw a more generally a, a more mature team overall. And what I mean by that is a team that understood its place, uh, wasn't awed by its success. I don't think got too caught up in it. I, I would hear people, and you probably did too, John, who would say, you know, at some point they're going to hear, uh, or, you know, they say, read the clippings here or hear all the commentary uh, in the zillions of sources that are out there that'll say how great they are and, and seep that all in and let that affect their play. I don't think that really happened. Maybe there was an occasion where they got somewhat full of what was going on, but it never really showed. And I credit that, of course, to Sean McDermott, uh, his ability to keep this team mostly grounded the whole way. Do you agree with this? There were times during the 2020 Bills season, maybe it was in 2021, maybe it was when uh, Taron Johnson's running an interception back 101 yards for a touchdown. There were times when I thought to myself, they're a team of destiny. Uh, they, they are there. It's more than just the sum of the parts here. There's something special going on here. Did you ever get that feeling about uh, the 2020 Buffalo Bills? Yeah, I, I did. And in fact, <laughs> I'll tell you a little story. So how things work when you're, you're writing um, on deadline, when, you, when you've got to uh, write a piece uh, about a game in the late hours of, of the night, which, was, uh, which happened a lot <laughs> with this team, sure. right, with all yep. the primetime games and postseason. And, and so I, I, I had to have two pieces ready during the course of the AFC championship game. And, and one, the first one I did was uh, framing something that would talk about their advancing to the Super Bowl for the fifth time and, and all this. Uh, and in the course of that, the word destiny came to mind that considering how long, you know, however many games in a row it would have been at the time, nine or 10 wins in a row and how it, how it was something like, what, 12 of 13, I believe, uh, if you when you look at yep. that that miracle game, uh, the, the, yeah, the, uh, Hale Murray pass in Arizona. Yeah. And so that to me said destiny. I mean, when you, when you use the word, you got to back it up with something. And I felt like you mentioned the Taron Johnson play and, and, and finding a way, uh, to win games where it wasn't, I mean, it, it was mostly defined by offense, but now you saw the defense take over in the Ravens game. And then in the course of this, Kansas City game, obviously those thoughts were fading uh, pretty quickly after the 9-0 lead. Uh, and, and so I had to reverse myself and go the other way. But yes, John, to answer your question in a long-winded way, I, I did agree with the, the destiny part for at least, you know, leading up to the AFC Championship. The way it ended the Bills season, uh, well, first of all, the way the regular season ended with the 56-point explosion against Miami, that was another point of destiny when I thought, man, how good are these guys? But a few weeks later, they win a couple of the playoff games and then go to Kansas City. And it seems to me uh, that game sort of not exposed them, but revealed some of the shortcomings that that may have existed all along that they covered up with, uh, starting, I guess, first and foremost with uh, the shortcomings of their quarterback, who had a very good year. He did. Um, and let's give Kansas City a lot of credit because we think of that team as Patrick Mahomes and you know, uh, Tyree Kill, Travis Kelsey, the whole offensive explosiveness, the offensive genius of Andy Reid and, and, and the work that Eric Bieniemy has done as an offense coordinator. But in that offensive line, uh, which, of course, has sustained some, some big injuries. But frankly, in the two games against Buffalo, the most lasting impression I have is how well defensively Steve Spagnolo, their veteran defensive coordinator, both schematically and how well their, their personnel played, uh, against the Bills to to shut down uh, what had been one of the great offenses in the NFL. And it's still, I mean, again, it ranked right up there with Kansas City as an outstanding offense. But, John, we saw it twice. We, two times is not uh, an accident. It's a trend, right. I think, that uh, Josh Allen struggled with, I think, a lot of what he saw. Now, you could simply say, well, the, the uh, coverage of the Chiefs just, they plastered themselves to the receivers and, and how many teams were able to do that all season? Almost none against Stefan Diggs and Cole Beasley. And, and what was the other line that we'd repeat off over and over again? Somebody is always open. And I, I, I believe to a certain degree, somebody could have been or got or, or could have, there could have been openings or opportunities to throw. That's not what 
quarterbacks are, are, are supposed to be looking for, right? They're supposed to throw a guy open. They're supposed to throw to a spot where the receiver gets to. And I think just in general, give the, the scheming of the Chiefs some credit along with the, the talent of the defense. I thought it was apparent early in the AFC championship game, uh, again, as you said, because you do have the, the October uh, loss to Kansas City, but it was apparent Josh Allen was not comfortable. He would go to the line of scrimmage and start to look around to change a play or, or call an audible and uh, worried about the clock winding down. It, he wasn't comfortable with what he was seeing, I thought, and that's uh, that's something to fix, I believe, in this offseason. Do you agree? Without, without question, uh, it's something to fix um, because – the discomfort and what causes that again, it's when a quarterback doesn't see what he want, what he thinks he should be seeing um, that that throws him off. Uh, You know, again, they study and prepare like every team does Brian Dayball, Ken Dorsey uh, getting, uh, getting him ready, uh, getting the whole offense ready. And, and remember it's, it's not just what the quarterback sees, although he's the, he's the orchestra leader, but it's, it's the line, it's the receivers, it's the adjustments. And I think for any of those um, questions that they created, uh, or I should say the questions that the chiefs created for the bills offense, Bill's offense, you know, wasn't coming back with the answers uh, that they needed. And, and I think a lot of that was um, again, how it was schemed. Um, and, and the pressure that was coming. And, and you, you notice, John, as, I'm, as I did uh, often in that AFC championship game, what were the O-linemen doing? In many, in many cases, looking at each other, looking back at Josh um, because of what was and – that, and that's obviously how you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to get to the line, sort of take a, a picture, a mental picture of what's happening, and then react accordingly. I never got the feeling they were in sync with that. And if you remember, John, after the game, you heard it from Mitch Morris, the center. You heard it from Josh Allen. They would refer to communication issues, that they could communicate, that if they learned something from this game, it would be communicate better. Now, they didn't go into detail of what that means, but I think we can safely conclude it was, okay, how do we change what we're doing here? Because it's not going to work against this. One of the hallmarks of of Josh Allen's young career has been a pretty dramatic improvement from year to year, right? He's done it already. One year he worked on accuracy and he was much more accurate, accurate the next year. He worked on deep passing this past year. He was a great deep passer this year. Strikes me this off season, maybe going into next season, Josh Allen, his biggest area improvement might be with what his recognition is and what he's seen and, and more of his head than, you know, how his feet are positioned or how, how you know, what his motion is like throwing the ball. Um, what do you think of that? Yeah, I, you know, I would think that um, by and large that let, let's let's go back to last offseason. Last offseason, the focus was on the mechanics of his game. Right. I mean, primarily now, again, I'm not going to say this as if I was watching him work out, but I'm going to take this from his version of what took place. Talk, I talked with Jordan Palmer, uh, his his quarterback guru, uh, his personal quarterback coach. You heard from Ken Dorsey, uh, Brian Dayball. The focus of the Sean McDermott, the focus of, of this past offseason was work on accuracy, long ball accuracy, footwork. Uh, he did those drills where he was throwing on an incline and then and then to a receiver up there um, that Palmer had him do to, to kind of drop the ball in and all these different drills, um, the discipline of it all. And in this sort of in this COVID offseason, I, I think he could really consume himself and, and work that way, even though, even if there wasn't a, the different offseason that we had, um, he would probably would have done it because his work ethic is excellent. Now, I would say this year it is maybe more deeper and more and deeper study of of what opponents are doing and how to break that down. I think he made strides in that area that contributed to, to a lot of the success. I feel I saw a more confident guy walking up to the line. But what I want to see now, and, and now we're talking year four, um, and you can't compare it to the veterans, but, you know, the, vet, the veteran players uh, learned how to see things instantly and react sort of instantly. And, and then when they go to the sideline, you see them with their, with their uh, Microsoft Surface or whatever, uh, studying that. And, and that's where I think, you know, the, the student in Josh 
uh, probably has to become more, has to um, expand, I guess is the way to put it. Vic Kerchi, who covers the bills for the Buffalo News, is with us. Vic, uh, a week ago for the Buffalo News, you wrote a really good piece, I thought, and you mentioned how the bills need to have a realistic approach to the offseason. What did you mean by that? What, what are you thinking of? So what I'm thinking of is when you see what got you to the AFC championship game, this outstanding offense, this, you know, the receivers who were mostly uncoverable, the outstanding performance by the quarterback. Uh, I think you, and then, you know, defensively, a defense that was, you know, far from what it, I thought from what it was in 2019, it wasn't, it wasn't horrible, but it was dominant then. And again, if we're going to, if we're going to listen to and believe what was said about the Chiefs being the gold standard, we heard that term right by players and, and coaches on the Bills. Um, to get to that gold standard, you you have to be complete. You know, the Bills' special teams played exceptionally well too. That that was a key factor. So, what you don't do though is let any of what and, and this is what what being realistic means. Let any of what was good for you, strong for you. Uh, in any way get weaker because you believe it's already there. You have to you have to take a hard look at everything, offensive line. Uh, certainly, the running game could, can use some some help to be a presence. Uh, and I, I don't think it's. It, I mean, I, I don't ever want to say it's easy because it's not. But to find uh, the, whatever assets you need to make that better, or make the changes that you need to make, whether it's changing out running backs. Uh, changes on the offensive line, but somewhere you've got to find an ability to have that. And also in your work toward it, your X's and O's with it. And that's another part of this. Don't assume that everything you did just because it worked well enough for 13 wins or actually 15 counting the postseason, that that means you've, you've got it all figured out. And then defensively know that you need a, a better pass rush an edge rusher, know that you need uh, a cornerback opposite, Tredavious White to, to because teams figure out as time goes on, you know, they can have success opposite him. Uh, know that your linebacking core uh, and while my, you know, I know we're going to talk more about the cap and all that, but you know, is, is it a case of if, if you lose somebody in phrasing like a Matt Milano, that you can get better in the middle that you can find, find better is, is Tremaine Edmonds, even though he has that pro bowl label doing everything you need him to do. Uh, to, to be strong there. And then, you know, the interior defensive line where, yeah, you had Starla Tulele opt out. I think that that absolutely affected how they played the run. So does he opt back in or, you know, what is your plan to deal with that? And then mostly, mostly draft well, draft exceptionally well. Brandon Bean has that executive of the year uh, uh, award that he richly deserved. Uh, he deserved his contract extension, as did Sean McDermott. You're really going to earn those those plaudits now, though, because um, you don't have the salary cap to, to help you just pluck talent out of free agency. This is this requires exceptional drafting. And John, you and I remember that Super Bowl run that the Bills had in the 90s. Most of that was driven by outstanding drafting. Yeah. Um, well, let's get into personnel. And, and can you rank or would you at least uh, rank number one, uh, the number one personnel uh, priority should be for the Bills and free agency or the draft? What do you think their, their focus should be on this offseason? Well, and, and again, you can't have that discussion without talking about where they pick, which is another thing in common, right. how they were drafting in the, in the 90s. They're picking lower. Um, but I think you can target uh, some players that you might be looking for. My priority would be that edge rusher. I, I I don't know that you can get Chase Young, you know, that kind of guy, but you should try your best to get something like that. Look look at how disruptive he was as a rookie. And, and as rookies, generally, pass rushers can excel. Um, it, it's the position where Yes, the the savvy and the learning and experience can can be a factor, and you and it'll probably tougher for Chase Young to be as dominant as he was as a rookie in year two because teams figure you out. But still, you want that you if you want some instant impact, that that's a place to get it and a place they need it. Uh, tight end is another spot <clears throat> that 
uh, failed this team, frankly. Uh, as much as Dawson Knox made some plays and was solid, um, solid doesn't get it done there. And and I'm not. Uh, we've heard Brandon Bean say, uh, you know, we don't have that. He went out of his way, I thought, in his uh, season wrap-up press conference to say we don't have that guy that teams worry about quote going off on them at tight end. Well, I'm not saying necessarily you find Travis Kelsey because he's exceptional or even Gronk in his prime. Again, these are hall of fame guys, but better than what you have. And someone who is consistently finding those seams, those openings to make an impact. And they, you know, they don't have anything approaching that. Vic Kirchie of the Buffalo news is with us. Hey, Vic, another piece you wrote recently, might've been last week. Um, and it, it applies to the 2020 bill season and into the future. And it was about Sean McDermott. You mentioned how you felt he has grown through the 2020 season. He's a better coach now than he was before. Um, tell me what you're thinking there. Yeah, well, it, it really, it, it's it's how he, he uses that term growth mindset, which I I, I like that. I, I yeah. know it's his pet, his pet, one of his pet phrases. Uh, and, and the players have bought into that, too. You can hear them repeat it, right, you know, in the interviews. I think – his own growth mindset showed up to me uh, in the way he handled the tough questions that he should have been hearing because another, another area where this team struggled, uh, I thought in the AFC championship game significantly was coaching. Uh, he was outcoached. He knows he was outcoached by his mentor, Andy Reed. Uh, and, and for sure, Steve Spagnolo got the better of Brian Dayball uh, from a defensive coordinator, offense coordinator situation. Uh, and then conversely, uh, you know, seeing what Andy and Eric Bieniemy did against uh, Leslie Frazier and Sean on the on the Bills' defensive side, um, those two decisions to make to go for field goals when you're on the doorstep of the goal line right before half, and and then later in the game, later in the at the end of the third quarter, so you know eight yard line, three yard line, and and you're fourth down and you're kicking field goals, and. I, I thought Sean's handling of that, when I say handling, and I happen to be the one to ask those questions about it, showed a growth because this was the same guy that in his first year, you know, go back to 2018, and the decision to start the opener with Nathan Peterman uh, and have that disastrous performance against the Ravens, that opener in Baltimore, before, uh, you know, before Josh Allen came in and took over, but you had, what, zero – no, zero points, uh, zero, zero touchdowns, a 0. 0.0 um, passer rating. Yeah. By the way, I don't think Sean's admitted yet that uh, he would reconsider that. <laughs> what he said was, right, Murph, was I'll take that. To, uh, it, I thought it was the right decision. I'll take right. that great. Then I believe, okay. <laughs> Which is where well, it belongs. That, that wasn't mature. That was a coach who wanted to, to let, you know, it, it was more important yeah. for him to talk about how right he was even when all the evidence showed, don't own that. I mean, I mean, right. I mean, own it, don't uh, defend it. Uh, you know, own it, don't defend it. Well, he owned what he did in this AFC Championship game. Flash forward, uh, fast forwarding uh, uh, four uh, four years or four seasons, and his answer. Now, I, I I didn't agree with either decision. He was using morale as a justification for the one right before half because he said he couldn't walk in and face a team and say, if they came away with no points and say, you know, we, we didn't get any points in that circumstance and how would the players feel? I believe that everybody understood that you're playing the Chiefs. You've got to get touchdowns, not field goals. That'll never that'll never work against the Chiefs. And obviously that third quarter one is the one where he said his he, I think, lost sleep over it and said he, he, he came as – is close to beating himself up. Maybe I think he said the words, I should have done something. I should have done, right. uh, done differently and, or I would have done it differently. And I think that's a guy who has grown um, he, as, as a guy who understands you can make mistakes, you can own those mistakes, but you can also uh, talk about it and, and be secure in yourself. Maybe it helps that he has the contract extension, too, yeah. and, and he feels more in charge of things than he did in his first year. Vic Carucci of the Buffalo News is with us. Vic, uh, so the Bills are not going to the Super Bowl this week. Neither are you. That's unusual, right? You usually wind up with this. How many have you gone to in a row? 
Uh, well, yeah, I, so I've been doing this now. This is, I think I just completed 42 years of covering the NFL, John. Uh, wow. Um, so in that, in that time, you know, going back to Super Bowl 15, I think it was like 79, 78, 79, 79, I believe, uh, I had been on a, on a, on a streak of, of going to all the Super Bowls. Now one, uh, in, in I love that, the story. Yeah. Tell me the story. Yeah, so, so there's a caveat, uh, my, my younger, <laughs> My younger daughter, Lindsay, uh, in, in, so this was in 1980, January of 1989, uh, and she was due, uh, my, uh, she was due to arrive, Rhonda, my wife, was due to have her uh, about a month after the Super Bowl. And I, uh, so, so we, Rhonda, we'd gone to the obstetrician, the visit, everything was fine. And, and we you really, thought you were safe. Yeah. Because I, I said, I'm going to be traveling to, and I had been doing the whole dad coaching, you know, going to all the coaching. Sure, stuff, the Maz, yeah. Coaching clinics, yeah. Uh, is that what they're called? Anyway, uh, so it was so long ago. But but uh, so, so 89, so we, we, she says, yeah, the obstetrician, you're, you're fine. She's on time. Everything is great. Okay. Sounds good to, to me. And because this was Rhonda would and she wasn't going to fly. So my brother was was accompanying me to this one. Uh, and he had never been to a Super Bowl and we were having a great week down in Miami. So this is in Miami. This is Cincinnati versus San Francisco. And, uh, uh, you know, there, it was a crazy week. They had the, the riots uh, that, that occurred down there and uh, just a lot of different different dynamics. And uh, anyway, my brother John and I are hanging out, and and again, uh, he he's enjoying the whole experience, and uh, he was going to go, you know, we're going to go to the game. So it's Thursday, and and my now this is no cell phones back then. The the little red light on my hotel room uh, phone oh, wow. is, is blank. Okay, and, I'm, and I pick it up, and it's Rhonda. Uh, it's a message from Rhonda uh, saying you got to call right away. And I said this this isn't good. I said <laughs> obviously this is. So I, I, I call uh, I, 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 and, and she tells me her water broke and she is on her way to the hospital. Uh, and OK. And I and I tell my brother, I said, look, I, you know, I got a hotel room here. I got and he's going to be the baby's godfather. Uh, so <laughs> but he says, nah, I can't. It's not the same. So I leave. Uh, the news sends Don Esmond, who worked for us then in, to, to take over and, and cover the game. I head back and I'm in Philadelphia changing planes and I get on a payphone. I, I call to check on what's going on be, before our next U.S. Airways flight back to Buffalo. And uh, they said, uh, we'll put you, Mr. Crucci, we'll put you through to recovery. Oh, so, so, uh, so Lindsay, and she's never really let me forget it. That I missed her birth, but we got there and we're at Children's Hospital. And I remember it was a snowy Thursday night in January 19th. Yeah. Great. But you've been to everyone for yep. what, 35 yeah, well, years? Uh, no, no, I, yeah. Every, I mean, except exactly. that Super Bowl. This, so, so this one, and it was interesting about a month, bef about a month ago. It was maybe a little more than a month ago. I, I feel like it was November, somewhere in there, that we got noticed uh, a notice from the NFL. I say we, the news. Uh, Josh Barnett, our executive sports editor. You know, we got we got because he he handles the credential uh, request, and it said um, even though we acknowledge that the Buffalo News has regularly covered this game, and that's a factor in the in the league's kind of perspective on giving you a seat in the press box. Um, I think they were fine with, you know, if you want to be here for the week, which what there's no, the teams you know, like Kansas City isn't arriving to Tampa until Friday or Saturday. The bills wouldn't have been traveling there until either Friday or Saturday. Um, and it said uh, uh, the league said, uh, if you if your team that you're covering is not in the game, don't plan on having a seat in the press box. So that kind of made the decision for us. Uh, but once the bills reached the uh, AFC championship game, we did, uh, they reached out to, to the Bills, uh, uh, excuse me, to the Buffalo media and to the uh, Kansas City media, and I'm sure an NFC uh, side as well, Tampa Green Bay, reached out and said, um, who, you have to tell us who, who you're going to be sending, and we'll lock those in, and then obviously if you're, the team loses, you're out. So I was going to be going. Um, the plan was to leave Friday um, because, again, it, it made no sense. And, and again, John, this is as close as we get to doing the interview. I mean, the normal Super Bowl week is media sessions and you're face to face, you're encountering. 
Well, none of that is happening with the Super Bowl. So I'm covering it the way you and I are speaking right now. <laughs> Which leads me to this question. Um, it's different, obviously, in the COVID era. And it's, um, I don't know if it's as good or as rewarding as it was, but from a, I guess, from my perspective, from a listener or a viewer standpoint, or from your perspective, from a reader standpoint, what do they not get from all of us in the media when we don't have that face-to-face contact, whether it's a Super Bowl or during the course of a regular season? What do you think is missing in coverage of the NFL this year? Yeah, I, I don't think for the Super Bowl's sake, even if it's the team you're covering, that it should be all that different. Because I think by the by that game, right, in the, in the case, you know, of, of the Bills, um, you know, you're, it's, it's, so it would be the – the uh, what the 20th game you're playing, if you're counting the sure. wild card round. Okay. Um, I think by the 20th game uh, uh, that counts and, and, you know, we didn't have preseason this year, the, your, your knowledge, your depth of understanding of the team should be strong enough that it wouldn't matter COVID or not uh, how close you are or, or whatever. However, I believe what was missing during the course of the season. And I think that's the part that still, if, if I had to say what made this year, it, I, I'm, I'm going to say on incomplete is the word I want to use, um, is that interaction, uh, never really getting it, never getting a chance to be in the same room and, and, ta- and, and making eye contact and talking with Stefan Dix, with Gabe Davis, with, you know, go down the list of, of guys who joined this team in 2020 and never, you know, Josh Allen, you know, but I'll tell you what, you've, I've gone a year now without, even though on a camera, you know, Zoom, hey, hey, Josh, hey, Vic, you, yeah, you know each other, Sean, the, but those, there are, there are times, as you all know, John, we've, we've both done this a long time, those, those personal relationships, that chance to take a Jerry Hughes aside, a veteran player and get some veteran perspective, um, and, and it's not as, I mean, back in the real old days, it was far more time and, and, and a little more, the setting was more, uh, I, I'd call it, you know, less uh, about appointments and because you, you only get a certain amount of time in the locker room. Well, back in the day, you, you, could, you could talk with guys pretty much as long as you wanted to after a practice and, and then away from the facility, whatever. That doesn't happen. Uh, that wasn't happening pre-COVID, but it's still better than these appointed settings where guy pops on screen on a certain day and time, and then that's it. And then you don't have anything else. So you're, I believe it's not that I'll ever pretend to thoroughly know the, the players or the coaches as well as, you, as I know you or, or my family or whatever, you know, close friends and family. You don't, I, I think it's virtually impossible to anybody who claims all oh, this, we're tight. I know this guy really, it, it might happen. And it's also not about being tight. It's a professional distance that you keep. But I, I think you learn more about everything, uh, the team itself, the player. There, there might be a level of, of trust and confidence. A player may say something uh, or an individual around the team that, they're, that they feel more comfortable telling you, even in the, in the background, off the record sense, yeah. uh, that way. That can't happen. Obviously, that can't happen. Now, can you text? Can you have phone calls? Can you do things like that? Yes. And do I still communicate with a lot of people around the league and get perspectives that I've always had um, just because I've done this for a thousand years and, and can lean on certain people who can, can give me uh, tips on ideas, stories, ideas, things they've seen watching film, coaches, scouts, whatever. Those communications still go on. And again, those don't require necessarily being in the same room. Hey, Vic, before I let you go, one quick question. I mentioned earlier, and I was getting ready for the interview, you have written, what, 10 books, eight books, 10 books? No, 10, yeah. Conrad Dobler, Fred Smurlis, John Gruden, Jim Kelly. He's counting. What was your favorite? I mean, what was the most fun one to write? Uh, Right. Is that like kids asking you to pick your favorite child? Right, yeah, pick your favorite kid. (laughs) Uh, you know, it's, I, I, I don't know that the word is favorite because they all kind of have a, se- a separate feel. Now, no lie. You, again, you know, Fred Smurlis and that personality. Yeah. I, I would say from, from beginning to end, it was the most fun experience just because of Fred being Fred. And we, we consumed a lot of Chinese food along the way. Uh, <laughs> Fred would go to, I don't even know if it's still open, Yip Lee's uh, in the South Town, right? Yeah. Uh, 
He'd bring over literally a giant grocery bag uh, to our house. He wanted to do the interviews here. Fred and Chris, his wife, would come over on Thursday nights, and we and he'd uh, we'd we'd eat we'd consume Fred mostly this Chinese food. Uh, wonder it was wonderful. I remember fan, fan, now. I, now I want Chinese food. Anyway, we we eat that. <laughs> We'd go to and I in my family room, and um, at the time, my older daughter had this big bean beanbag chair, this big blue beanbag chair that was her favorite. She'd lay, lay out, watch cartoons, whatever. Fred would um, would plop himself on that, almost exploded with his almost three hundred pounds, whatever. And when I'd see that, I'd say we got problems now because I need him like into it. We're talking. Yeah. And he looked like he was ready to go to sleep because it was Thursday. It had been after practice. It would be, and now it's Thursday night. And the other rule of thumb, well, so two things. One, when I, I'd asked him, I, I knew one chapter I was really in trouble. He was going to go over and give his assessments of the best uh, offensive linemen he faced or rank them and talk about them in detail. You, you know, coming from Fred Smurlos, that's a you, you figure that's a chapter people are going to be into. So I'd say, okay, Fred, let's talk about, you know, the Anthony Munoz. And I just brought it up as it, it, it just what makes him great. And he, he'd be back on his back and he'd go, I don't know, Victor, what do you think? What do I think? Nobody cares what I, this is your, your, I don't play against Anthony Munoz. You can, so I knew I was in trouble then when he'd do that. And then as I'm, as he's looking at his like watch or what time is it? I, I said, well, it's, it's almost 8.30. He had to get home on Thursdays to watch Knott's Landing. He had to be home. And he and I said, Fred, you got these VCR, you know, tape it, right? VCRs were the thing. No, no, I got I got to watch it the first time through. I don't want to tape it. I'm going to watch it. So that was our rule. We had to be done so we could get home for Knott's Landing. <laughs> that sounds like it'd be the, the most fun book to write. Hey, Vic, it's always fun to talk with you. I've kept you way too long. Thank you very much. And uh, let's stay in touch over these this offseason. Thank you very much. Anytime, Murph. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with your host, John Murphy. We're talking beer with the reporter and beer columnist for the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle. Will Cleveland is his name. He's on the line with us. Will, thanks very much for joining us. You cover more than beer, obviously, right? There's not a full-time job covering beer in Rochester. Yeah, no, I, I wish there was a full-time job in, in beer reporting, but um, no, I've been, I'm luck, been lucky enough to work for my hometown paper for the last 13 years, and um, I cover both uh, public safety and beer. Um, so it's a interesting marriage of, of two, you know, vastly different beats. Yeah, I would think so. Uh, you write a regular beer column for the Rochester DNC. Is that what I do? Um, I generally write one every two weeks, um, unless there's some beer breaking news or you know, like a new brewery is opening, depending on what the calendar looks like. Um, you know, like so in the last few weeks, I've just Written about a new brewery that's opening up near downtown Rochester. Um, I wrote my best of 2020 column. So I mean, there's there's no shortage of of, of beer news, thankfully. And, and 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 wildly enough, it seems like we haven't been as impacted by the pandemic as I would have expected. We haven't really seen any closures in Monroe County, which is which is kind of crazy to consider. You mean brewery closings, right? Beer making exactly. Yeah. What, yeah do you, exactly. what do you attribute that to? What do you think that is? Um, I think there's still a. a I mean. You're, you're sitting at home, you still want to drink, right? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that there's just an insatiable hunger and a desire to, to support local. Um, you see a lot of these places, even even during the pandemic, are, are growing. I, I, I can think of at least five places off the top of my head that have um, invested in new infrastructure. You know, they've invested in new fermentation, um, you know, more tanks. Um, they've renovated their tasting room. So, I mean, it's it's it seems like there's, even though all of this stuff is going on, there's still a desire to support local, which is really cool. You know, I, I noticed that in, in your column when I read your best of 2020, I think that's where I read this. You said Rochester is one of the best emerging beer scenes in the country. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, I look at it this way. If, 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 if you were to tell me I couldn't drink any beer outside of the Rochester, Western New York, Finger Lakes area, um, you know, for for the rest of time, I'd be really happy with that because we have so much variety here. I mean, just in Monroe County, you know, where Rochester is alone, we have 25 breweries, you know, and then you expand that into the Finger Lakes and you get, you know, up, upwards of, of 70 or 80 breweries. And then you're not even, you know, Buffalo is an hour away and you have, you know, 10, 12 options that are just within the city limits of, of Buffalo right near your county. Um, so it, it seems like even though 
things have slowed down in a lot of different places. You've seen breweries closing at a, at a, at a bigger number um, than in, in other locations. Uh, it still seems like the, this area is prime for growth and it's, and it's all because of these places are kind of attacking the market in different ways. Um, you know, you have these places that are, you know, doing things on a small scale. You have some places that are opening up and, you know, looking to get their beer statewide. And there's just a number of different ways where these breweries are reaching consumers and kind of attacking this market. So I think it's an emerging beer scene because it seemed like we didn't really start to pick up our growth in, in the Rochester and Buffalo area specifically um, until probably after 2010, 2011. And a lot of it had to do with um, state restrictions that were eased back in 2012 um, that made it a little bit easier to open a brewery. So we've seen a ton of growth um, just in the last eight, nine, 10 years. It sounds like what you're saying is that Rochester and Buffalo also kind of late to the party as far as local brewing. Would you say that's the case? Yeah. I mean, I mean, look at, look at Buffalo specifically, you know, you have kind of the, the two original, you know, craft breweries from, from the, 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 the modern era, I guess you could call it would be, you know, would be Pearl street and flying bison. And, you know, each of those places, what they opened in, in the late nineties. And then if you look in Rochester, our original craft brewery is Warbox. They opened in 1991, but, you know, between, you know, between that 95 to 2010 period, there was hardly any breweries opening at all. Um, I think Rochester had four, three or four. Um, I mean, it seemed like the kind of the, the, the arc of growth in Buffalo really started after 2012 when you saw Community Beer Works open. Um, so it's, it seems like, like I said, with kind of state restrictions easing a little bit and just, I mean, I think, uh, people want to support local and they want to like, you know, there's something to be said that you can, you know, walk into your favorite brewery and you can, you know, talk to the person who made that beer. That's, that's pretty cool. You can't do that in a lot of different industries. Uh, you took me right to the next thing I want to ask you about the, the focus on local beer, which you, you cover pretty extensively in the Rochester Democratic Chronicle. What is that? Is that just a, a flag waving, uh, array for home situation or what, why is there such a focus on local beer? Not for you, but for the country in general. Yeah, I mean, so that's, a, that's a really, really good question. Um, I think it's part of your regional identity. Um, I think a lot of these places too have, are, are operating under what's called the New York state farm brewery license. So they have to make their beers have to have at least 60% New York state grown ingredients, whether it be hops or, or grains. Um, so there's an identity there because you're, you're drinking beers that are really like from the, the, the Western New York soil, you know, from the roster soil. Um, so it's, it's almost like you can, you can taste what your area, you know, you, you can, they kind of do this with, with the wine. They talk about terroir, you know, which is kind of like the, the, how, how your, how your climate and how your soil and all those things kind of factor into, you know, like grapes from this area might taste a little different than grapes from this area and it's and it's kind of the same way with with hops that are grown here or or malts and grains that that are grown here um so i think i think that put that plays into it i just think there's a lot of local pride um you know i mean you see you see it in, you see it in sports fandom right i mean people are people are are ravenous they're they're crazy about you know whether it be the buffalo bills or whether um whether it's the the sabers or or the bandits or the roster nighthawks right you know or any of those teams um, you know, the Amherst or what, whatever, you can keep going on and on. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of pride um, in, in, what, in what, what goes on here. Well, uh, through my, uh, well, most of my adult life, through my childhood, and I'm considerably older than you, when people talked about Rochester beer, they <laughs> were talking about Genesee beer. And amazingly, they still That's can hard. get Genesee beer, right? That's kind of a, an outlier in that sense, isn't it? It's crazy. Um, I mean, Genesee is the oldest brewery in New York State. You know, it opened in 1878. Um, it had kind of a slowdown, obviously, during the during Prohibition. You know, it focused on it kind of morphed and focused on some some near beer things and some almost like homebrewing kits. Um, you know, to kind of get around get around some of the the, the laws that were in place. But um, I mean, it, as as far as you can go back, I mean, you can it's it's right there and right right north of downtown rosters you know the genesee brewery campus you know right over right overlooking high falls and there's there's a lot of pride um like i was saying you know with local and, and genesee is a big reason for that um you know with with you know with kind of its three flagships with jenny light with with genesee red eye and then with uh, genesee cream ale um you know those are all kind of american classics and uh it's it's kind of cool that you know one of the 10 biggest breweries in the in the, in the country is is right here in rochester you know, I, I, I'll confess, I kind of grew up with Genesee Cream Ale, but it's different now than it was 
30, 40 years ago, right? It's more of a, a craft type of uh, beer option. No. What do you think? I think, I think, honestly, I think you're, you're, I think you kind of hit on that a little bit because I think it's, it's kind of almost become cool to drink Jenny cream out. If that makes yeah. any sense. Um, you know, there's kind of like a, like almost like a younger hipster kind of vibe to it almost. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with just the, the way the brewery has reinvented itself. Uh, it, it went through a, a period, you know, maybe 10, 15 in the last 20 years or so where it, the brewery was, you know, on, on the brink of closing and then employees bought it back and then it was bought by a, a hedge fund. And then um, I think in 2013, I think, yeah, is when they were bought out by this Costa Rican company called Florida ice uh, Fifco is, is, is the name of the company. Um, and that kind of, they, you know, they invested $50 million into this upgrade, this modernization of the brewery. And that really solidified um, this brewery. I think that finished about 2018, um, so that really kind of solidified the, the, the future of Genesee in this area. But, um, I think there's just a lot, I, I keep saying it. I think there's a lot of local pride. Um, you know, Genesee cream ale is really kind of the classic. I mean, it's not the original cream ale, but it's, it's, you know, when it came out in 1960, it was like the beer that kind of put cream ales on the map. Um, so, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty cool. Hey, well, um, I, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I listened to an interview you did with uh, Genesee's Brewmaster, and you mentioned the Genesee Brew House. What is that in Rochester? Yep. They've opened it up to the public to see what goes on at Genesee now. So or? it's basically there's an old brewing uh, building. It actually was a plumbing supply building for a little bit when it wasn't a, a building owned by the brewery. Um, but the Genesee Brew House opened in 2012, and it's kind of like an incubator brewery. Um, and it's kind of like this, it's so where the, the Genesee brewery itself has a 500 barrel brewing system, which is, you know, massive, um, right. probably the second one, biggest one in the state, I would say, uh, behind Baldwinsville, which is where the, uh, the big Anheuser-Busch Budweiser plant is. Right. Um, so they have a 20 barrel brewery at the Genesee brew house where they're able to do like smaller pilot batches of things. And then also has a restaurant there, has a really cool rooftop patio that overlooks High Falls and the rest of downtown Rochester, and also has like a brewing museum. Um, so that the Genesee brew house is kind of like the gateway into the Genesee brand because the, the big brewery itself is just so, you know, weird and old and like almost like a labyrinth that it's laid out. Um, if, if they were to lay out a brewery the way they laid this brewery out, it wouldn't make any sense because it's <laughs> all kind of, you know, weaving in and out. And it's a lot of it dates back to the fifties and sixties and they've kind of put modern equipment into these spots where you wouldn't expect to see it. So um, it's, it's kind of hard for the the big Genesee brewery to be open for, for public tours. So the Genesee brew house kind of has helped with this resurgence that we've seen with the Genesee brand, because it's kind of a gateway into um, gateway into the, the brewery itself. And uh, it's, it's, it's allowed people to really interact with, with the brand, which is really cool. Hey, well, we've talked a lot about the, the influence and popularity of local uh, brewing, but uh Two-part question here. Is there a role for, 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 for imported beers? And have you tried Sullivan's, uh, any one of Sullivan's uh, products, any of the three Irish yeah. ales? Um, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm of the mind that there's a, there's a beer for every occasion, right? Um, and I like variety in my beers. You know, like I'll, I'll reach for like a crazy fruited sour that blurs the lines between, you know, between fruit drink and beer, or I'll drink a hazy IPA. Or like like you were saying, John, with my best of 2020 column, um, I'm a huge fan of Coors Banquet beer. Um, yeah. So I like having, you know, there's beers that, you know, sometimes you just want a beer that tastes like beer. And um, that's kind of what I appreciate about the, the Sullivan's um, portfolio, because they just do a really good job of kind of almost providing like this craft um, version of like these classic Irish styles. What are you working on now? What you, what's going to be next in your your beer column? Uh, what do you, what do you think? Um, so I'm actually got an interview lined up for tomorrow, which is Thursday, where we're going out to a spot in Fairport in suburban Rochester that's called Faircraft Faircraft Brow House um, that just opened up in the last few months, and they just completed their restaurant. So they've opened up uh, a like a almost like a German style beer hall type place where you can you know get your 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 schnitzel and your your sausages. Um, not, not so unlike, um, what you, what you've seen, uh, with Hofbrau house in Buffalo, um, but maybe a little bit smaller, kind of a craft version where the beers are made in, made in house. Um, so we're going to do a look at what's going on with that place and, uh, just hopefully 
hopefully keep writing positive articles about beer and hopefully we don't have to deal with any closures. So yeah, that's, you know, well, to, nice. to wrap things up, I mean, I, I know you got this other aspect of your job. You're a real live reporter covering real live issues in Rochester, but um, the beer industry is so varied and so diverse. You'll never run out of material when you, when you cover beer, whether you're in Rochester, Buffalo or anywhere else. Do you agree? Absolutely. I mean, so we've done a, a good job of, I've been writing about beer for the paper now for, it'll be seven years in June. So we've, we've developed a really um, devoted audience and, and I've been able to kind of highlight some of the things that are going on regionally. You know, like I was among the first that broke the news that big ditch is opening their, their big production facility, um, you know, closer, you know, moving closer to the Batavia kind of area there. Um, is that, was that Clarence, I think, or is that Chictawaga? But anyways, um, so, um, so that, that's, you know, we've, we've, we've kind of, I've tried to show that there's just not stuff happening in Rochester. There's things in the Finger Lakes, there's, you know, Syracuse, we have Buffalo. Um, and it, there's just no, like, I, like, you know, with, with over 450 breweries in the state, there's, there's no shortage of stories to tell or people to highlight or, or beers to try, which is pretty amazing. You do a great job with it. Will. thanks very much for being with us here today. Thanks, John. Have a good day. Well, our thanks to Will Cleveland of the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle. He is their bi-weekly beer columnist. You can keep up on beer and brewing news in the Rochester area by following Will in the newspaper. Thanks to our football guest, Vic Carucci of the Buffalo News. He had some really interesting thoughts on the Bills, their approach to the 2021 offseason, and his view of the Super Bowl. It is days away now, Super Bowl 55, the Chiefs and the Bucks. Hope you enjoy the game. You may want to stock up on some Sullivans to help your enjoyment. Sullivan's Maltings Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Irish Gold Ale, Sullivan's uh, available in stores and beer cellars all over the place. Here in upstate New York in Buffalo, Rochester, central New York, the Albany, Saratoga area, available in New York City and on Long Island, all over New Jersey, Pittsburgh, Columbus, Ohio, Cleveland, Georgia, Atlanta, Savannah. They are our sponsors, Sullivan's Brewing Company of Kilkenny, Ireland. I want to thank our producer, Pat Feldbaugh. Enjoy the Super Bowl, everybody. We'll talk about the game next week right here on Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. You've been listening to John Murphy and Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's all about the Bills and the Beers.